Welcome to Nutting Memorial Library's presentation of Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim, a story of tragedy, adventure, and redemption that begins with a life-changing decision made by a young sailor in a moment of crisis. This podcast presents the text of Lord Jim as read from the original publication, available through Project Gutenberg. You can follow along in the text by clicking the link in our show notes. This is the fourth installment of Lord Jim, which includes chapters 8 and 9 for those following along in the text. Weekly episodes are released each Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe. With each episode, we recommend an article available via Nutting Library's electronic resources that provides insight on aspects of the novel, and we will also be sharing details about the historical context at the time of its publication via our social media accounts. As a heads up to listeners, this episode does include one instance of the N-word, which occurs about three and a half minutes into the reading itself. We have censored that word in our reading, and you'll hear a beep when it occurs. To see the word in context, you can refer to our links to the text in the show notes. Lauren joins us between chapters 8 and 9 to have a conversation about our decision to censor the word, and there are several articles listed in the show notes this week that address some aspects of that word in literature, culture, and the classroom to provide you with further reading on the topic. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this fourth installment of Lord Jim. Chapter 8 How long he stood stock still by the hatch, expecting every moment to feel the ship dip under his feet and the rush of water take him at the back and toss him like a chip, I cannot say. Not very long. Two minutes, perhaps. A couple of men he could not make out began to converse drowsily, and also, he could not tell where, he detected a curious noise of shuffling feet. Above these faint sounds there was that awful stillness preceding a catastrophe, that trying silence of the moment before the crash. Then it came into his head that perhaps he would have time to rush along and cut all the lanyards of the gripes so that the boats would float as the ship went down. The Patna had a long bridge, and the boats were up there, four on one side and three on the other, the smallest of them on the port side and nearly abreast of the steering gear. He assured me, with evident anxiety to be believed, that he had been most careful to keep them ready for instant service. He knew his duty. I dare say he was a good enough mate as far as that went. I always believed in being prepared for the worst, he commented, staring anxiously in my face. I nodded my approval of the sound principle, averting my eyes before the subtle unsoundness of the man. He started unsteadily to run. He had to step over legs, avoid stumbling against the heads. Suddenly, someone caught hold of his coat from below, and a distressed voice spoke under his elbow. The light of the lamp he carried in his right hand fell upon an upturned dark face, whose eyes entreated him together with the voice. He had picked up enough of the language to understand the word water, repeated several times in a tone of insistence, of prayer, almost of despair. He gave a jerk to get away, and felt an arm embrace his leg. "'The beggar clung to me like a drowning man,' he said impressively. "'Water! Water! What water did he mean? What did he know? As calmly as I could, I ordered him to let go. He was stopping me. Time was pressing. Other men began to stir. I wanted time. Time to cut the boats adrift.' He got hold of my hand now, and I felt that he would begin to shout. It flashed upon me it was enough to start a panic, and I hauled off with my free arm and slung the lamp in his face. The glass jingled, the light went out, but the blow made him let go, and I ran off. I wanted to get at the boats. I wanted to get at the boats. 
He leaped after me from behind. I turned on him. He would not keep quiet. He tried to shout. I had half throttled him before I made out what he wanted. He wanted some water. Water to drink. They were on strict allowance, you know, and he had with him a young boy I had noticed several times. His child was sick and thirsty. He had caught sight of me as I passed by and was begging for a little water. That's all. We were under the bridge in the dark. He kept on snatching at my wrists. There was no getting rid of him. I dashed into my berth, grabbed my water bottle, and thrust it into his hands. He vanished. I didn't find out till then how much I was in want of a drink myself. He leaned on one elbow with a hand over his eyes. I felt a creepy sensation all down my backbone. There was something peculiar in all this. The fingers of the hand that shaded his brow trembled slightly. He broke the short silence. These things happen only once to a man, and, uh, well, when I got on the bridge at last, these beggars were getting one of the boats off the chocks. A boat! I was running up the ladder when a heavy blow fell on my shoulder, just missing my head. It didn't stop me, and the chief engineer, they had got him out of his bunk by then, raised the boat stretcher again. Somehow I had no mind to be surprised at anything. All this seemed natural and awful and awful. I dodged that miserable maniac, lifted him off the deck as though he had been a little child, and start and he started whispering in my arms, Don't! Don't! I thought you were one of them I flung him away. He skidded along the bridge and knocked the legs from under the little chap, the second. The skipper, busy about the boat, looked round and came at me head down, growling like a wild beast. I flinched no more than a stone. I was as solid standing there as he this. He tapped lightly with his knuckles the wall beside his chair. It was as though I had heard it all, seen it all, gone through it twenty times already. I wasn't afraid of them. I drew back my fist and he stopped short, muttering, Ah, it's you. Lend a hand, quick. That's what he said. Quick. As if anybody could be quick enough. Aren't you going to do something? I asked. Yes, clear out, he snarled over his shoulder. I don't think I understood then what he meant. The other two had picked themselves up by that time and they rushed together to the boat. They tramped, they wheezed, they shoved, they cursed the boat, the ship, each other, cursed me, all in mutters. I didn't move, I didn't speak. I watched the slant of the ship. She was as still as if landed on the blocks in a dry dock, only she was like this. He held up his hand, palm under, the tips of his fingers inclined downwards. Like this, he repeated. I could see the line of the horizon before me, as clear as a bell above her stem head. I could see the water far off there, black and sparkling and still, still as a pond, deadly still, more still than ever sea was before, more still than I could bear to look at. Have you watched a ship floating head down, checked in, sinking by a sheet of old iron too rotten to stand being shored up? Have you? Oh yes, shored up? I thought of that. I thought of every mortal thing. But can you shore up a bulkhead in five minutes? Or in fifty, for that matter? Where was I going to get men that would go down below? And the timber, the timber! Would you have had the courage to swing the maul for the first blow if you had seen that bulkhead? Don't say you would. You had not seen it. Nobody would. Hang it, to do a thing like that, you must believe there is a chance, one in a thousand at least, some ghost of a chance. And you would not have believed. Nobody would have believed. You think me a cur for standing there, but what would you have done? What? You can't tell. Nobody can tell. One must have time to turn round. What would you have me do? Where was the kindness in making crazy with fright all those people I could not save single-handed, that nothing could save? Look here, as true as I sit on this chair before you. He drew quick breaths at every few words and shot quick glances at my face, as though in his anguish he were watchful of the effect. He was not speaking to me. 
He was only speaking before me, in a dispute with an invisible personality, an antagonistic and inseparable partner of his existence, another possessor of his soul. These were issues beyond the competency of a court of inquiry. It was a subtle and momentous quarrel as to the true essence of life, and did not want a judge. He wanted an ally, a helper, an accomplice. I felt the risk I ran of being circumvented, blinded, decoyed, bullied, perhaps, into taking a definite part in a dispute impossible of decision, if one had to be fair to all the phantoms in possession, to the reputable that had its claims, and to the disreputable that had its exigencies. I can't explain to you, who haven't seen him, and who hear his words only at second hand, the mixed nature of my feelings. It seemed to me I was being made to comprehend the inconceivable, and I know of nothing to compare with the discomfort of such a sensation. I was made to look at the convention that lurks in all truth and on the essential sincerity of falsehood. He appealed to all sides at once, to the side turned perpetually to the light of day, and to that side of us which, like the other hemisphere of the moon, exists stealthily in perpetual darkness, with only a fearful ashy light falling at times on the edge. He swayed me. I own to it, I own up. The occasion was obscure, insignificant, what you will, a lost youngster, one in a million. But then he was one of us, an incident as completely devoid of importance as the flooding of an ant heap, and yet the mystery of his attitude got hold of me as though he hadn't been an individual in the forefront of his kind, as if the obscure truth involved were momentous enough to affect mankind's conception of itself. Marlowe paused to put new life into his expiring cheroot, seemed to forget all about the story, and abruptly began again. My fault, of course. One has no business, really, to get interested. It's a weakness of mine. His was of another kind. My weakness consists in not having a discriminating eye for the incidental, for the externals. No eye for the hod of a rag picker or the fine linen of the next man. Next man, that's it. I haven't met so many men, he pursued with momentary sadness. Met them, too, with a certain, certain impact, let, let us say. Like this fellow, for instance. And in each case, all I could see was merely the human being, a confounded democratic quality of vision which may be better than total blindness, but has been of no advantage to me, I can assure you. Men expect one to take into account their fine linen, but I could never get up any enthusiasm about those things. Oh, it's a failing, it's a failing. And then comes a soft evening, a lot of men too indolent for whist, and a story. He paused again to wait for an encouraging remark, perhaps, but nobody spoke. Only the host, as if reluctantly performing a duty, murmured, "'You are so subtle, Marlowe.' "'Who? I?' said Marlowe in a low voice. "'Oh, no, but he was. And try as I may for the success of this yarn, I am missing innumerable shades. They were so fine, so difficult to render in colorless words. Because he complicated matters by being so simple, too. The simplest poor devil.' By Jove, he was amazing. There he sat telling me that just as I saw him before my eyes, he wouldn't be afraid to face anything, and believing in it too. I tell you, it was fabulously innocent, and it was enormous, enormous. I watched him covertly, just as though I had suspected him of an intention to take a jolly good rise out of me. He was confident that, on the square, on the square, mind, there was nothing he couldn't meet. Ever since he had been so high, quite a little chap, he had been preparing himself for all the difficulties that can beset one on land and water. He confessed proudly to this kind of foresight. He had been elaborating dangers and defenses, expecting the worst, rehearsing the best. He must have led a most exalted existence. Can you fancy it? A succession of adventures, so much glory, such a victorious progress. 
and a deep sense of his sagacity crowning every day of his inner life. He forgot himself, his eyes shone, and with every word my heart, searched by the light of his absurdity, was growing heavier in my breast. I had no mind to laugh, and lest I should smile I made for myself a stolid face. He gave signs of irritation. It is always the unexpected that happens, I said in a propitiatory tone. My obtuseness provoked him into a contemptuous pshaw. I suppose he meant for the unexpected couldn't touch him. Nothing less than the unconceivable itself could get over his perfect state of preparation. He had been taken unawares, and he whispered to himself a malediction upon the waters and the firmament, upon the ship, upon the men. Everything had betrayed him. He had been tricked into that sort of high-minded resignation which prevented him lifting as much as his little finger, while these others who had a very clear perception of the actual necessity were tumbling against each other and sweating desperately over that boat business. Something had gone wrong there at the last moment. It appears that in their flurry they had contrived in some mysterious ways to get the sliding bolt of the foremost boat chalk jammed tight, and forthwith had gone out of the remnants of their minds over the deadly nature of that accident. It must have been a pretty sight, the fierce industry of these beggars toiling on a motionless ship that floated quietly in the silence of a world asleep, fighting against time for the freeing of that boat, groveling on all fours, standing up in despair, tugging, pushing, snarling at each other venomously, ready to kill, ready to weep, and only kept from flying at each other's throats by the fear of death that stood silent behind them, like an inflexible and cold-eyed taskmaster. Oh yes, it must have been a pretty sight. He saw it all. He could talk about it with scorn and bitterness. He had a minute knowledge of it by means of some sixth sense, I conclude, because he swore to me he had remained apart without a glance at them and at the boat, without one single glance. And I believe him. I should think he was too busy watching the threatening slant of the ship, the suspended menace discovered in the midst of the most perfect security, fascinated by the sword hanging by a hair over his imaginative head. Nothing in the world moved before his eyes, and he could depict to himself without hindrance the sudden swing upwards of the dark skyline, the sudden tilt up of the vast plain of the sea, the swift still rise, the brutal fling, the grasp of the abyss, the struggle without hope, the starlight closing over his head, forever like the vault of a tomb, the revolt of his young life, the black end. He could, by Jove who couldn't. And you must remember, he was a finished artist in that particular way. He was a gifted poor devil with the faculty of swift and forestalling vision. The sights it showed him had turned him into cold stone from the soles of his feet to the nape of his neck, but there was a hot dance of thoughts in his head, a dance of lame, blind, mute thoughts, a whirl of awful cripples. Didn't I tell you he confessed himself before me as though I had the power to bind and to loose? He burrowed deep, deep in the hope of my absolution, which would have been of no good to him, this was one of those cases which no solemn deception can palliate, where no man can help, where his very maker seems to abandon a sinner to his own devices. He stood on the starboard side of the bridge, as far as he could get from the struggle for the boat, which went on with the agitation of madness and the stealthiness of a conspiracy. The two Malays had meantime remained holding to the wheel. Just picture to yourself the actors in that, thank God, unique episode of the sea, four beside themselves with fierce and secret exertions, and three looking on in complete immobility, above the awnings covering the profound ignorance of the hundreds of human beings, with their weariness, with their dreams, with their hopes, arrested, held by an invisible hand on the brink of annihilation. For that they were so makes no doubt to me. Given the state of the ship, this was the deadliest possible description of accident that could happen. 
These beggars by the boat had every reason to go distracted with funk. Frankly, had I been there, I would not have given as much as a counterfeit farthing for the ship's chance to keep above water to the end of each successive second. And still, she floated. These sleeping pilgrims were destined to accomplish their whole pilgrimage to the bitterness of some other end. It was as if the omnipotence whose mercy they confessed had needed their humble testimony on earth for a while longer, and had looked down to make a sign, Thou shalt not, to the ocean. Their escape would trouble me as a prodigiously inexplicable event. Did I not know how tough old iron can be, as tough sometimes as the spirit of some men we meet now and then, worn to a shadow and breasting the weight of life? Not the least wonder of these twenty minutes, to my mind, is the behavior of the two helmsmen. They were amongst the native batch of all sorts brought over from Aden to give evidence at the inquiry. One of them, laboring under intense bashfulness, was very young, and with his smooth, yellow, cheery countenance, looked even younger than he was. I remember perfectly briarly asking him, through the interpreter, what he thought of it at the time, and the interpreter, after a short colloquy, turning to the court with an important air. He says he thought nothing. The other, with patient blinking eyes, a blue cotton handkerchief faded with much washing, bound with a smart twist over a lot of grey wisps, his face shrunk into grim hollows, his brown skin made darker by a mesh of wrinkles, explained that he had a knowledge of some evil thing befalling the ship. But there had been no order. He could not remember an order. Why should he leave the helm? To some further questions, he jerked back his spare shoulders and declared it never came into his mind then that the white men were about to leave the ship through fear of death. He did not believe it now. There might have been secret reasons. He wagged his old chin knowingly. Aha, secret reasons. He was a man of great experience, and he wanted that white Tuon to know, he turned towards Briarly, who didn't raise his head, that he had acquired a knowledge of many things by serving white men on the sea for a great number of years, and suddenly, with shaky excitement, he poured upon the spellbound attention of a lot of queer-sounding names, names of dead-and-gone skippers, names of forgotten country ships, names of familiar and distorted sound, as if the hand of dumb time had been at work on them for ages. They stopped him at last. A silence fell upon the court, a silence that remained unbroken for at least a minute, and passed gently into a deep murmur. This episode was a sensation of the second day's proceedings, affecting all the audience, affecting everybody except Jim, who was sitting moodily at the end of the first bench, and never looked up at this extraordinary and damning witness that seemed possessed of some mysterious theory of defense. So these two Laskers stuck to the helm of that ship without steerage way, where death would have found them if such had been their destiny. The Whites did not give them half a glance, had probably forgotten their existence. Assuredly, Jim did not remember it. He remembered he could do nothing, he could do nothing, now he was alone. There was nothing to do but to sink with the ship, no use making a disturbance about it, was there? He waited upstanding, without a sound, stiffened by the idea of some sort of heroic discretion. The first engineer ran cautiously across the bridge to tug at his sleeve. Come and help, for God's sake, come and help. He ran back to the boat on the points of his shoes and returned directly to worry at his sleeve, begging and cursing at the same time. I believe he would have kissed my hands, said Jim savagely, and next moment he starts foaming and whispering in my face. If I had the time, I would like to crack your skull for you. I pushed him away. Suddenly he caught hold of me round the neck. Damn him, I hit him. I hit out without looking. Won't you save your own life, you infernal coward, he sobs. Coward? He called me an infernal coward. Ha, 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 ha. He called me. Ha, ha, ha. 
He had thrown himself back and was shaking with laughter. I had never in my life heard anything so bitter as that noise. It fell like a blight on all the merriment about donkeys, pyramids, bazaars, or whatnot. Along the whole dim length of the gallery, the voices dropped, the pale blotches of faces turned our way with one accord, and the silence became so profound that the clear tinkle of a teaspoon falling on the tessellated floor of the veranda rang out like a tiny and silvery scream. You mustn't laugh like this, with all these people about, I remonstrated. It isn't nice for them, you know. He gave no sign of having heard at first, but after a while, with a stare that, missing me altogether, seemed to probe the heart of some awful vision, he muttered carelessly, Oh, they'll think I am drunk. And after that, you would have thought from his appearance he would never make a sound again. But no fear. He could not more stop telling now than he could have stopped living by the mere exertion of his will. Joining us now to talk about this section of the text with me is Lauren Gargani, Library Director at Nutting Memorial Library. Hi, Anne. Hey, Lauren, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Pretty well, thanks. So, this week's segment is a little bit different. Yeah, we've got some pretty harsh language in this section. Okay, and we decided that we wanted to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I especially wanted to talk about this because it's a matter of censorship to a certain degree. Um, and any time that we change an original text or omit a portion of it, I think it bears talking about and kind of why we make that decision. Sure. And one of the things about us as librarians, one of the very important things is, you know, as a general rule, we tend to be very anti-censorship. Yeah, and we tend to like to let texts stand as they were published, um, that they're not always going to be great um, and modern in their ways of talking about things, and they might become very dated, but recognizing them in their historical context is uh, something that we like to do and make sure that if people want to see what was published, then they have that ability to do so. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And, you know, at the same time, you know, as much as we are proponents of, you know, accessing information and allowing people to, you know, make those decisions for themselves and understand the context, um, we had to make a, a decision here. Yeah, so you will have heard in this first section um, that we just listened to that there is an instance of the N-word being used by one of the characters. It's a pretty brief moment. Um, but we ended up deciding to censor that um, and to omit it, um, not to replace it with anything else, um, but certainly not to have that suddenly crop up for our listeners without any warning. So we made this decision partly because um, we, as we're valuing the text, we're also valuing the listener and the person who could be reading this and, you know, not be prepared for language that, you know, we we know has a really complicated history and, and is hurtful. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to me, this language in particular, I really focus not so much on its complexity, because in a way it's quite simple, but it's simple in just how hurtful it is and can be. Um, and I think that it's important for people to know what word was in that place. Um, and it's important for people to be able to read it in its context. So it is certainly available in 
I would assume any edition of Lord Jim that you pick up, including the two that we have linked in the show notes, so you can see it all there. Um, but it, as you said, it is about in part valuing the listener that that can be um, something that can really blindside you um, when you're listening to material. And we wanted people to have a little bit more choice in what they were hearing at that moment. Um, and I think that part of what's important in this context is who was saying it, why they were saying it, what that tells us about the character. So there's a lot of value that's in that original language. You know, this was coming out of a character's mouth as he was preparing to abandon ship and leave all of the passengers on board. This was not somebody who we were supposed to see as a good and moral person. Um, and I think that this word was likely chosen to help illustrate that. Um, and I think that that is important, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's something that we want to actively say ourselves and certainly not without some additional conversation about what choice we were making. And that choice would be potentially to leave it in as it was, to censor it, to replace it. All of those would be possibilities. But I think that regardless of that choice, we would need to talk about what our purpose was in eliminating it. Right. And you just alluded to the fact that this can be seen as a way of characterizing, you know, the person who's saying the word in the book as, you know, someone we're clearly meant to understand as, you know, this is not a positive figure. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a little complicated by the fact that we're seeing some other language that's no longer appropriate or accepted um, being used in the book. And it's not always by people that we're supposed to dislike. Sometimes it is by our protagonists or just in kind of the casual nature of conversation in the book. Um, and that includes words like oriental that we simply don't use anymore to describe an entire group of people. Um, and so it's not always that this author and this text are using that type of word to denote a, a character that we dislike or one that we're supposed to really question their morality. Um, I think that is the case for the N-word that uh, we heard or that occurs in this first part of this reading. That's a good distinction to make that, you know, some of this is just a part of the language that was used at the time. And, and that's something we need to examine um, or that we would benefit from examining and understanding and um, appreciating maybe um, learning a little bit more about why that isn't the case anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to go even deeper with it, um, it's it's not subtext in this book that there is a racial distinction between the different types of people on board the ship that we're talking about. Um, there are the passengers, uh, there are um, a lot of the crew, and then there are the officers. Um, and I think that we are, as readers, really supposed to take a look at that. It's very um, apparent in the book. It's not something that's hidden. It's not even something that's really casual. It's mentioned quite often. Um, and, you know, sometimes we see members of our crew staying on board, and those are distinct from the officers who are choosing to abandon ship. And so I think this is 
an invitation to look a little bit deeper at, for one thing, the words that are being used in the text, but also um, there may be some additional commentary in the book itself about um, what this group was likely thinking and feeling and ways in which that really wasn't okay. That's helpful. And Lauren, I understand that you actually have an article for us about Orientalism specifically um, for this week's article. I do, and this is with the understanding that there has been a lot written about Conrad and race, and there are many, many articles and, and uh, books written about this topic. So certainly just one recommendation among many, but this article is by Nick Panagopoulos and it's from 2013. It's titled Orientalism in Lord Jim, the East Under Western Eyes. And, you know, again, one of many sources, but a starting point for thinking about some of these issues and um, really looking at the text and, um, you know, we will link that out in the notes. That's great. Thank you. And I'll also say that there are a lot of really great articles about um, use of some of this very hurtful um, language that has been used for a long time. Um, and we're going to link to several of those in our show notes so that if any listeners want to read a little bit more on it, I will have a few different points of view because there are a lot of different ways of approaching this. Um, and I also want to say that you know, as Lauren, you and I were talking about this and talking about it more broadly with our colleagues, we really were not necessarily confident in how we've approached this particular issue. Um, there are a lot of arguments to be made for why a text shouldn't change and we shouldn't try to make it more comfortable for people to listen to. And there are also a lot of arguments for why we need to kind of take care of ourselves at this point and maybe talk about the issues without blindsiding people with some really hurtful language. Um, so I, I encourage people to consider that. And certainly if um, you're not comfortable with the method that we took, we will likely very much understand that. Um, and we're all just kind of working to try to figure out how we both live in this world and also read things that are historical. Great. Thank you, Anne. I, you know, as we've talked about this, um, as you noted, it is it was a decision that we had to put a lot of thought into and, and consider a lot of angles. And, um, and again, you know, we understand that there are different schools of thought around this, but, um, you know, we're, we're open to understanding that that is a conversation and we certainly, you know, encourage reading and considering different schools of thought. Yeah. And I'll just finish up also by saying that librarians are also great at recommending more things to read. Um, so if any of our listeners want more information, want books to read on these topics, want articles to read, um, want to know if what they have is a, a good source or something that's reliable, um, we're here for that. Um, and we can kind of help recommend materials and talk more about the different kinds of materials out there. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you, Lauren. See you next time. Till then. And now we return to this installment of Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. 
Chapter 9 I was saying to myself, Sink, curse you, sink! These were the words with which he began again. He wanted it over. He was severely left alone, and he formulated in his head this address to the ship in a tone of imprecation, while at the same time he enjoyed the privilege of witnessing scenes, as far as I can judge, of low comedy. They were still at that bolt. The skipper was ordering, Get under and try to lift. The others naturally shirked. You understand that to be squeezed flat under the keel of a boat wasn't a desirable position to be caught in if the ship went down suddenly. Why don't you... Why don't you, you, the strongest, whined the little engineer. Got for damn, I am too thick, spluttered the skipper in despair. It was funny enough to make the angels weep. They stood idle for a moment, and suddenly the chief engineer rushed again at Jim. Come and help, man. Are you mad to throw your only chance away? Come and help, man. Man, look there, look. And at last Jim looked astern where the other pointed with maniacal insistence. He saw a silent black squall which had eaten up already one-third of the sky. You know how these squalls come up there about that time of year. First you see a darkening of the horizon, no more than a cloud rises opaque like a wall. A straight edge of vapor lined with sickly whitish gleams flies up from the southwest, swallowing the stars and whole constellations. Its shadow flies over the waters and confounds sea and sky into one abyss of obscurity. And all is still. No thunder, no wind, no sound. Not a flicker of lightning. Then, in the tenebrous immensity, a livid arch appears. A swell or two, like undulations of the very darkness, run past. And suddenly, wind and rain strike together with a peculiar impetuosity, as if they had burst through something solid. Such a cloud had come up while they weren't looking. They had just noticed it, and were perfectly justified in surmising that if, in absolute stillness, there was some chance for the ship to keep afloat a few minutes longer— the least disturbance of the sea would make an end of her instantly. Her first nod to the swell that precedes the burst of such a squall would be also her last, would become a plunge, would, so to speak, be prolonged into a long dive, down, down to the bottom. Hence these new capers of their fright, these new antics in which they displayed their extreme aversion to die. It was black, black, pursued Jim with moody steadiness. It had sneaked upon us from behind. The infernal thing, I suppose there had been at the back of my head some hope yet, I don't know, but that was all over anyhow. It maddened me to see myself caught like this. I was angry as though I had been trapped. I was trapped. The night was hot, too, I remember, not a breath of air. He remembered so well that, gasping in the chair, he seemed to sweat and choke before my eyes. No doubt it maddened him. It knocked him over afresh in a manner of speaking but it made him also remember that important purpose which had sent him rushing on that bridge only to slip clean out of his mind. He had intended to cut the lifeboats clear of the ship. He whipped out his knife and went to work slashing as though he had seen nothing, had heard nothing, had known of no one on board. They thought him hopelessly wrong-headed and crazy, but dared not protest noisily against the useless loss of time. When he had done, he returned to the very same spot from which he had started. The chief was there, ready with a clutch at him to whisper close to his head, scathingly, as though he wanted to bite his ear. "'You silly fool! Do you think you'll get the ghost of a show when all that lot of brutes is in the water? Why, they will batter your head for you from these boats!' He wrung his hands, ignored, at Jim's elbow. The skipper kept up a nervous shuffle in one place and mumbled, "'Hammer! Hammer! Mine got! Got a hammer!' The little engineer whimpered like a child, but, broken arm and all, he turned out the last craven of the lot, as it seems, and actually mustered enough pluck to run an errand to the engine room. No trifle. It must be owned in fairness to him. Jim told me he darted desperate looks at the concerned man, gave one low wail, and dashed off. 
He was back instantly, clambering, hammer in hand, and without a pause flung himself at the bolt. The others gave up Jim at once and ran off to assist. He heard the tap-tap of the hammer, the sound of the released chalk falling over. The boat was clear. Only then he turned to look. Only then. But he kept his distance. He kept his distance. He wanted me to know he had kept his distance, that there was nothing in common between him and these men who had the hammer. Nothing whatever. It is more than probable he thought himself cut off from them by a space that could not be traversed, by an obstacle that could not be overcome, by a chasm without bottom. He was as far as he could get from them, the whole breadth of the ship. His feet were glued to that remote spot, and his eyes to their indistinct group bowed together and swaying strangely in the common torment of fear. A hand lamp lashed to a stanchion above a little table rigged up on the bridge. The Patna had no chart room amidships threw a light on their laboring shoulders, on their arched and bobbing backs. They pushed at the bow of the boat, they pushed out into the night, they pushed and would no more look back at him. They had given him up as if indeed he had been too far, too hopelessly separated from themselves, to be worth an appealing word, a glance, or a sign. They had no leisure to look back upon his passive heroism, to feel the sting of his abstention. The boat was heavy, they pushed at the bow with no breath to spare for an encouraging word, but the turmoil of terror that had scattered their self-command like chaff before the wind converted their desperate exertions into a bit of fooling upon my word, fit for knockabout clowns in a farce. They pushed with their hands, with their heads, they pushed for dear life with all the weight of their bodies, they pushed with all the might of their souls. Only no sooner had they succeeded in canting the stem clear of the davit than they would leave off like one man and start a wild scramble into her. As a natural consequence, the boat would swing in abruptly, driving them back, helpless and jostling against each other. They would stand nonplussed for a while, exchanging in fierce whispers all the infamous names they could call to mind and go at it again. Three times this occurred. He described it to me with morose thoughtfulness. He hadn't lost a single movement of that comic business. I loathed them. I hated them. I had to look at all that, he said without emphasis, turning upon me with a somberly watchful glance. Was ever there anyone so shamefully tried? He took his head in his hands for a moment, like a man driven to distraction by some unspeakable outrage. These were the things he could not explain to the court, and not even to me, but I would have been little fitted for the reception of his confidences had I not been able, at times, to understand the pauses between the words. In this assault upon his fortitude there was the jeering intention of a spiteful and vile vengeance. There was an element of burlesque in his ordeal, a degradation of funny grimaces and the approach of death or dishonor. He related facts which I have not forgotten, but at this distance of time I couldn't recall his very words. I only remember that he managed wonderfully to convey the brooding rancor of his mind into the bare recital of events. Twice, he told me, he shut his eyes in the certitude that the end was upon him already, and twice he had to open them again. Each time he noted the darkening of the great stillness. The shadow of the silent cloud had fallen upon the ship from the zenith, and seemed to have extinguished every sound of her teeming life. He could no longer hear the voices under the awnings. He told me that each time he closed his eyes a flash of thought showed him that crowd of bodies laid out for death as plain as daylight. When he opened them, it was to see the dim struggle of four men fighting like mad with a stubborn boat. They would fall back before it time after time, stand swearing at each other, and suddenly make another rush in a bunch. Enough to make you die laughing, he commented with downcast eyes, then raising them for a moment to watch my face with a dismal smile. I ought to have a merry life of it, by God, for I shall see that funny sight a good many times yet before I die. His eyes fell again. 
See and hear, see and hear, he repeated twice at long intervals, filled by vacant staring. He roused himself. I made up my mind to keep my eyes shut, he said, and I couldn't. I couldn't, and I don't care who knows it. Let them go through that kind of thing before they talk. Just let them, and do better, that's all. The second time my eyelids flew open and my mouth, too, I had felt the ship move. She just dipped her bows and lifted them gently, and slow, everlastingly slow, and ever so little. She hadn't done that much for days. The cloud had raced ahead, and this first swell seemed to travel upon a sea of lead. There was no life in that stir. It managed, though, to knock over something in my head. What would you have done? You are sure of yourself, aren't you? What would you have done if you felt now, this minute, the house here move? Just move a little under your chair. Leap, by heaven! You would take one spring from where you sit and land in that clump of bushes yonder. He flung his arm out at the night beyond the stone balustrade. I held my peace. He looked at me very steadily, very severe. There could be no mistake. I was being bullied now, and it behooved me to make no sign lest by a gesture or a word. I should be drawn into a fatal admission about myself which would have had some bearing on the case. I was not disposed to take any risk of that sort. Don't forget I had him before me, and really he was too much like one of us not to be dangerous. But if you want to know, I don't mind telling you that I did, with a rapid glance, estimate the distance to the mass of denser blackness in the middle of the grass plot before the veranda. He exaggerated. I would have landed short by several feet, and that's the only thing of which I am fairly certain. The last moment had come, as he thought, and he did not move. His feet remained glued to the planks if his thoughts were knocking about loose in his head. It was at this moment, too, that he saw one of the men around the boat step backward suddenly, clutch at the air with raised arms, totter, and collapse. He didn't exactly fall. He only slid gently into a sitting posture, all hunched up, and with his shoulders propped against the side of the engine room skylight. That was the donkey man, a haggard, white-faced chap with a ragged mustache, acted third engineer, he explained. Dead, I said. We had heard something of that in court. So they say, he pronounced with somber indifference. Of course, I never knew. Weak heart. The man had been complaining of being out of sorts for some time before. Excitement, overexertion, devil only knows. <laughs> it was easy to see he did not want to die either. Droll, isn't it? May I be shot if he hadn't been fooled into killing himself. Fooled, neither more nor less. Fooled into it, by heavens, just as I... Ah, if he had only kept still, if he had only told them to go to the devil when they came to rush him out of his bunk because the ship was sinking, if he had only stood by with his hands in his pockets and called them names. He got up, shook his fist, glared at me, and sat down. A chance missed, eh? I murmured. Why don't you laugh, he said, a joke hatched in hell, weak heart. I wish sometimes mine had been. This irritated me. Do you? I exclaimed with deep-rooted irony. Yes, can't you understand? He cried. I don't know what more you could wish for, I said angrily. He gave me an utterly uncomprehending glance. This shaft had also gone wide of the mark, and he was not the man to bother about stray arrows. Upon my word, he was too unsuspecting. He was not fair game. I was glad that my missile had been thrown away, that he had not even heard the twang of the bow. Of course, he could not know at the time that the man was dead. The next minute, his last on board, was crowded with a tumult of events and sensations which beat about him like a sea upon a rock. I used the simile advisedly, because from his relation I am forced to believe he had preserved through it all a strange illusion of passiveness, 
as though he had not acted but had suffered himself to be handled by the infernal powers who had selected him for the victim of their practical joke. The first thing came to him was the grinding surge of the heavy davit swinging out at last, a jar which seemed to enter his body from the deck through the soles of his feet and travel up his spine to the crown of his head. Then, the squall being very near now, another and heavier swell lifted the passive hull in a threatening heave that checked his breath, while his brain and his heart together were pierced as the daggers by panic-stricken screams. Let go! For God's sake, let go! Let go! She's going! Following upon that, the boat falls ripped through the blocks, and a lot of men began to talk in startled tones under the awnings. When these beggars did break out, their yelps were enough to wake the dead, he said. Next, after the splashing shock of the boat literally dropped in the water, came the hollow noises of stamping and tumbling in her, mingled with confused shouts. Unhook! Unhook! Shove! Unhook! Shove for your life! Here's a squall down on us! He heard, high above his head, the faint muttering of the wind. He heard below his feet a cry of pain. A lost voice alongside started cursing a swivel hook. The ship began to buzz fore and aft like a disturbed hive, and, as quietly as he was telling me all of this, because just then he was very quiet in attitude, in face, in voice, he went on to say without the slightest warning, as it were, I stumbled over his legs. This was the first I heard of his having moved at all. I could not restrain a grunt of surprise. Something had started him off at last, but of the exact moment, of the cause that tore him out of his immobility, he knew no more than the uprooted tree knows of the wind that laid it low. All this had come to him. The sounds, the sights, the legs of the dead man. By Jove, the infernal joke was being crammed devilishly down his throat. But, look you, he was not going to admit any sort of swallowing motion in his gullet. It's extraordinary how he could cast upon you the spirit of his illusion. I listened as if to a tale of black magic at work upon a corpse. He went over sideways, very gently, and this is the last thing I remember seeing on board, he continued. I did not care what he did. It looked as though he were picking himself up. I thought he was picking himself up, of course. I expected him to bolt past me over the rail and drop into the boat after the others. I could hear them knocking about down there, and a voice as if crying up a shaft called out, George! Then three voices together raised a yell. They came to me separately. One bleated, another screamed, one howled. Ugh! He shivered a little and I beheld him rise slowly as if a steady hand from above had been pulling him out of the chair by his hair. Up, slowly, to his full height, and when his knees had locked stiff, the hand let him go, and he swayed a little on his feet. There was a suggestion of awful stillness in his face, in his movements, in his very voice when he said, They shouted, and involuntarily I pricked up my ears for the ghost of that shout that would be heard directly the false effect of silence. There were eight hundred people in that ship, he said, impaling me to the back of my seat with an awful blank stare. Eight hundred living people, and they were yelling after the one dead man to come down and be saved. Jump, George, jump. Oh, jump. I stood by with my hand on the davit. I was very quiet. It had come over pitch dark. You could see neither sky nor sea. I heard the boat alongside go bump, bump, and not another sound down there for a while, but the ship under me was full of talking noises. Suddenly the skipper howled, Mein Gott, the squall, the squall, shove off! With the first hiss of rain and the first gust of wind, they screamed, Jump, George, we'll catch you, jump! The ship began a slow plunge, 
The rain swept over her like a broken sea. My cap flew off my head. My breath was driven back into my throat. I heard as if I had been on the top of a tower another wild screech. George! Oh, jump! She was going down, down, head first under me. He raised his hand deliberately to his face and made picking motions with his fingers as though he had been bothered with cobwebs, and afterwards he looked into the open palm for quite half a second before he blurted out. I had jumped. He checked himself, averted his gaze. It seems, he added. His clear blue eyes turned to me with a piteous stare, and looking at him standing before me, dumbfounded and hurt, I was oppressed by a sad sense of resigned wisdom, mingled with the amused and profound pity of an old man helpless before a childish disaster. Looks like it, I muttered. I knew nothing about it till I looked up, he explained hastily. And that's possible, too. You had to listen to him as though you would to a small boy in trouble. He didn't know. It had happened somehow. It would never happen again. He had landed partly on somebody and fallen across a thwart. He felt as though all his ribs on his left side must be broken. Then he rolled over and saw vaguely the ship he had deserted uprising above him, with the red sidelight glowing large in the rain like a fire on the brow of a hill seen through a mist. She seemed higher than a wall. She loomed like a cliff over the boat. I wished I could die, he cried. There was no going back. It was as if I had jumped into a well, into an everlasting deep hole. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Lord Jim. As a reminder, please check our show notes for the link to the text as well as information on related reading. This episode was read and produced by me, Anne Dyer. Article recommendations and graphics by Lauren Gargani. Special thanks to Emily Baer and Jen DeJoy. Music by Chad Crouch.